dealing to me in the 10th chapter of 1 Kings, where we, instead of, you know, shining success, we begin to see some cracks develop in the kingdom. And it's interesting because if you were to glance your way through this passage, you might find yourself noticing more and more of the markers or indicators of God's favor upon the king. Everything seems to be going right for him. His influence and wealth are growing, his kingdom is expanding, and he has peace with all of the other countries around him. And is this the correct assumption that everything's going well? Well, tonight we're going to take a look. And I just want to say, please do not assume that this sermon is some glorified biography about an ancient king. Okay, this is God's word. It's God's written word, and it's written for your benefit tonight. Um, even as you hear these words from my mouth, but more importantly, these words from God's word. This word has serious, personal, and eternal applications for you. Yes, for you. The title of my sermon tonight is, Is It Enough? It's a question. Is it enough? And I want to keep it really simple and straightforward, but know that I'm going to ask you some rhetorical questions tonight, and with those questions, I just want you to think deeply on them. Just ponder them, just chew them up in your mind, go over them. You'll have a chance to discuss some of these things in small group. But we need the Spirit's help in order to think correctly about God's Word. So let's ask for His help. Lord, You are a gracious Father to us, and You are kind in all Your ways. Um, Lord, and we thank You for Your Spirit, which illuminates and applies the Word of God to our hearts. God, it's incredible that this book, this passage that was written 4,000 years ago, is applicable to us tonight, Lord. And that's only by Your Spirit. So we ask that Your Spirit would come, move, work. God, remove any hindrances from our hearts, Settle the distractions, the thoughts that are coming into our mind, and let us sit before you and hear your word. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's dive in here. 1 Kings chapter 10, reading verse 1. Now, when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. As we've been seeing, King Solomon's rise to power was not ordinary. It was expedient. It was hugely successful. And news of his reign, his abilities, his wisdom, his wealth, would have spread across the globe. This was making international headlines, okay? Had there been a New York Times, everyone would have known about it. There was no king on the earth like Solomon. In fact, as we'll see later in our passage, that King Solomon excelled all the kings in riches and in wisdom upon the earth. He was above them all. And with all of his success, it is easy to understand why it was attractive. People throughout the world who heard of Solomon were drawn to him. And that's my first point tonight. Question, we're going to fill in a sentence here. Is it enough, point number one, to be famous? To be famous. Is it enough to be famous? You and I see this all the time. We live in a world that's filled with people who are famous, you know, for all sorts of different reasons. Whether that be a superstar athlete, whether that be uh, someone on social media, an influencer on social media. Um, maybe it's a popular musician that comes to your mind when you think of fame or famous person. Each of these 
figures, each of these types of people, have their own following of people, their own fans. Maybe there's someone that, as soon as I said that, came into your mind, and you're like, oh, I'd love to meet that guy. I'd love to meet that girl. I'd love to take a picture with them. Right? That's, that's our picture of fame. That's what we live and work with. And King Solomon was the equivalent of like the highest level of fame that you could reach. He was the highest level of celebrity in his day, and this drew the attention and the pursuit of the Queen of Sheba, as we see in verses 1 and 2. The Queen of Sheba, I should say, though, was not a slouch herself. She had her own kingdom. She was doing really well. She obviously brought a significant gift um, that we'll see more of as we go, but you can even see from the beginning that she brings gold, she brings precious, precious stones, and she brings all of these spices. This great tribute. Um, this was a big deal when the Queen of Sheba arrived. And, arrived. and um, look, at, look at verse 2. It says she came in a very great retinue. This is like this big posse that shows up. This is like, think of presidential blacked out escalades rolling up. Okay, like this is a big deal. Queen of Sheba's coming. Right? This is a big meeting, and she brings this great tribute because she wants to pay honor to the King Solomon, who's doing so well. This is a great housewarming gift that she offers him. And later on, actually, in our passage in verse 24, you don't need to look there, it says that the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. So all these people are flocking to the king. They're all going to King Solomon because they know... That Solomon equals success. Wherever Solomon's going, that's where you want to get behind. Because you are going to be better off if you're on the same side as King Solomon. My question is, is it enough to have this kind of fame? Would being known all across the world be enough to satisfy you? Is that something that you find yourself drawn to? Most of you would answer no with your words. But would your life um, demonstrate that as well? Would your life show that you don't desire the fame of the world? High schooler, why do you spend so much precious time that God has given you making sure your Instagram wall looks prim and proper and neat and precise, exactly how you want it to be? Why do we spend so much time thinking of the perfect caption that's going to get us more likes? Why do we spend all of our effort focusing on how we can look our best on social media. And I'm speaking because I have been there too. I've been in the same spot. But the truth is, is that this fame that we're seeking in this way will never satisfy. It's not enough. Why, then, do we still seek it? Why do you still seek it? Why do you pursue it? It's because we don't trust that God is really enough for us. It's not enough to be famous. Fame will never satisfy the deep internal longing and craving within your heart to be known and to be loved. The things that this world can offer will not do that. There's something within you. As I'm saying this, you are feeling it. There's something within you that desires to be cared for and appreciated and loved and honored. And do you know that the God of all has offered his son? That he may give you all things, that you may be an heir to all of his inheritance? He knows you. He cares for you. 
And the empty fame that this world can offer will never satisfy like that. It will never quench that thirst. It was never designed to do that. Solomon tonight had great fame as we look at our text. There's no doubt about that. But what actually drew the queen to him? Let's read on in our text. Going on in verse 2, I'm going to backtrack and then we're going to keep going. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices, very much gold, precious stones. When she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. Takes your breath away. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and saw it with my own eyes. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Point number two, is it enough to be the wisest? What does the Queen of Sheba want from Solomon? She desires wisdom. As we read in verse 1, she comes to test the king with hard questions. Queen's coming to grill the king. Say, okay, these, these thoughts, these rumors that I've heard, are they actually true? Is there legitimacy? Is there validity to the claims that I've heard? Is King Solomon really as impressive as the rumors say? And she tells him all that's on her mind. And this isn't just like, you know, speed map. What's 12 times 46? Like, okay, this is more advanced, okay? This isn't just, okay, what came first, the chicken or the egg, right? <laughs> that's not what we're talking about. This is like political dilemmas. This is ethical things that are going on. Oh, how do you decide this? How do you answer this question? King Solomon answers all of her questions. That's what verse 3 says, that Solomon answered every one of her questions, that there was nothing hidden from the king that he couldn't describe or explain to her. Have you ever met someone, maybe that, that sounds really smart in the way that they talk, like they use really big words that you know, go over the rest of our heads? You just go right over. You don't, you don't follow along. You're like, this guy's operating on another level. He's way smarter than I am. But yet, if you look at their life, the way that they actually like, apply that knowledge shows that there's a disconnect there. Maybe they're actually more like us, you know, not on this other level, Right? King Solomon was not that person. And we see this in verse 4 and 5, is that the, the wisdom that Solomon had wasn't just theoretical. It was practical. And it showed itself in the way that he ordered his house. Solomon had order and intentionality in everything that he did. The architecture and the design of his house. The plethora of foods. How does he gather all these foods from across the world without a refrigerator? I don't know, but he did it. He was smart. The way that his servants and his attendants were dressed, the way that they were ordered, everything in Solomon's house had a reason. It was all intentional. And the queen of Sheba takes notice of this. If we read on in verse 6, the queen offers her praise. She, says in the, she said to the king, the report was true. Everything that I've heard was true. And not only everything that I heard, but more. We're going to get into that more. When the queen of Sheba heard that Solomon's wisdom was more advanced than anyone in the world, and his wealth surpassed all of the kings of the earth, she probably assumed that this was some type of exaggeration, right? 
She probably assumed that this is some story, some, you know, heard from the grapevine. Oh, yeah, this guy told me he did this. I can't believe it. No way. You know, like that kind of story. So she's like, I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to go ask him. And she says that all that was, all that I've seen, all that was heard, all, excuse me, all that I heard was not half of the truth. There's so much more to this king than I have heard. Is it enough to be the wisest person in the world? I asked earlier if it would be enough for you if you were famous. I'm sure that some of you tonight, listening, aren't really interested in that. If you can honestly say, don't really care about you know, what people's opinions of me are, don't really care about social media culture, getting likes, being popular, etc., etc. You don't want superficial attention. But what you maybe do desire is wisdom, and not just good wisdom, but wisdom that comes with power so that you can dictate your own life. So that you can control a conversation, so that you can win an argument, so that you can show that, you know, I'm not as foolish as that person. I'm not, I'm not quite as low as that person. I'm a little better than them, right? Maybe you just really want to be the first one to turn in your test at school. Like, is that too much, right? But that can come from an evil, sinful heart. Maybe you're just placing your hope in this. But is that really enough to satisfy you? Would wisdom really satisfy you? Would feeding this pride that you're above other people ever result in anything other than an increased desire for that? It's a question to think about. But let's move tonight to another section. We're going to read on in verse 10. Then the Queen of Sheba gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of precious spices and stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the Queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Moreover, the fleet of Hiram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought from Ophir a very great amount of almond wood and precious stones. And the king made of the almond wood supports for the house of the Lord, for the king's house, also lyres and harps for the singers. No such almond wood has come or been seen to this day. Point number three. Is it enough to be the richest? Is it enough to be the richest? As we've been looking at this text tonight and throughout this sermon series, we see that King Solomon's wealth puts him at the top of the food chain. Right? Everyone is subordinate to him in terms of riches. And though the Queen of Sheba offered this great gift, which if you were to calculate how much 120 talents of gold is worth today. It's about $245 million, just so you know. Right? So she comes and she just gives him $245 million worth of gold, plus a quantity of spices that's never been seen on the earth. That's a lot. Plus all of these precious gemstones. Right? She's giving a great gift. But the truth is that her gift was probably not much more than a kind generosity to King Solomon. Solomon wasn't dependent upon that. This guy had gold coming out of his ears, right? Verse 14 gives us a picture of this. Now the weight of the gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. This is billions of dollars that are coming in. Plus, if we read on, besides that which came from the explorers, from the business of merchants, and from all the kings of the West, and from the governors of the land. So he's got billions that are coming from this mine in Ophir. Plus all that's being traded, all that's being attributed, all of... All of this money is just flowing to King Solomon. He is the original King Midas. Everything that this guy touches is turned into gold, and he's collected. 
He is amassing wealth by the billions, and his kingdom continues to expand its reach. With all this gold he continues to acquire, what does he do with it? Well, the text tells us. The first thing he does is he builds this, this fleet of shields. Kind of interesting. We're going to look at verse 16. King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold, 600 shekels of gold went in each shield, and he made 300 shields of small shields of beaten gold, and the king, oh sorry, three minas of gold went into each of these shields. And the king put them in the house of the force of Lebanon. So he makes these shields. The big shield is about $400,000 worth of gold. So a, a large house. And the small shield is about $100,000 worth of gold. Which is still a house, but a small house. Okay. And what does he do with these shields? He hangs them on the wall. And he uses them for decoration. And for whenever there's a big ceremony, he... He dresses the knights up, the, the, the troops up with these gold shields to display the wealth that God has given to him. What else does he create? I'm going to go through this quickly. You don't need to read. But it says he creates a great throne in verse 18 through 20. And he describes it. It's, it's this ivory throne. It's made out of tooth. And it's covered in gold. It covers the whole thing in gold. It has lions that are surrounding six steps that ascend to the throne. This is like the most majestic throne that you could conceive. And actually, it says in the end of verse 20 that the like of it was never made in any kingdom. This is the height of luxury. He also replaces all of the vessels, all of the utensils that are in the kingdom. In verse 21, he replaces all of the drinking vessels with gold. None of them were of silver. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. Verse 27 actually adds to this. He says, the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. Can you imagine walking out on the street? Like, it's literally giving you this picture that if I walk out on this dirt path which is made of stone, that stone is not worth any less than that pile of silver right there. Because King Solomon's kingdom is so lavish. God is blessing him so abundantly. He also hires a ship, of, a fleet of ships, in verse 22, that go to this place, this distant land, and they return every three years, and they bring more gold, they bring silver, they bring ivory, they bring apes, and they bring peacocks. Right? So now Solomon's a zoologist. He's studying these animals. He's collecting this great herd that just continues to, to, to display God's favor upon his kingdom. If we read further on in verse 28, it says, And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and from Ku, and the king's traders received them from Ku at a price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver, could be imported from Egypt, and a horse for 150 shekels of silver. And so through the king's traders, they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. The king imports horses from Egypt. He has a trade alliance with them. And he gets them essentially for free. Like we were just talking about silver was nothing. And he's saying, yeah, I only have to pay this much silver, which is great because it's worthless here. So he is building this huge army. Solomon is committing huge amounts of effort and energy to build this kingdom. What's wrong with that? Here's where we start to see some cracks. Is there something wrong with working hard and earning money? Is there something wrong with investing in a place that gives the best return? 
Does Jesus, not even himself, give multiple parables to stress the fact that we're supposed to be good stewards? We're supposed to invest our money wisely. There is actually something wrong, and you can turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 17, and we're going to read it. There is a problem here. Deuteronomy chapter 17, we're going to start in verse 14. This passage is given to the nation of Israel as God is setting up how he wants his kings to reign. These are the requirements. This is the prescription for a good king, a good kingdom. And if you follow these requirements, you will have a king on the throne forever. These are the parameters that God gives. I'm going to skip down here. It says in verse 15, You may indeed set a king over you from the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers shall be set as a king over you. You shall not put a foreigner over you, who, someone who's not your brother. Here's the indictment, verse 16. Only this king, here's what he cannot do. This king must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. You were once enslaved, and I have released you. I have set you free. You shall not return that way. Verse 17, and the king shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. King Solomon's failing. He is not measuring up to any of the metrics that God gives. And it seems that God is blessing him because he's doing all these right things. He's taking all the right steps. He's putting his money where it should be. He's, he's doing this and he's serving this and he's, he's, he's being blessed still. Yet he's sinning. King Solomon is denying the word of God. How in the world would God still bless him? Well, if you think about it, she sounds kind of familiar. Right? I, I sin against God every day. You sin against God in the way that you live, in the way that you think, in the way that you speak. You sin against God. What do you deserve for that sin? Punishment. But for all of us who have been united to Christ by faith, what do we receive? Blessing. We receive blessing. Because the Lord desires to be kind to us. The Lord wants to bless us. And this is such sweet news. Removes a great burden from my back. I hope it does the same for yours. Is that in spite of my sin that happens every day that I hate, that I do not want any part of, the Lord's favor is still set upon me. It's set upon all who trust in Christ. Don't disregard that blessing. And if you are a believer, enjoy it. Take heart. Be encouraged that that is a blessing that you experience. I have one more thought for you tonight. Is it enough to be blessed by God? Is it enough to be blessed by God? And this one kind of ties the others together, but I want to unpack it. 
As we think of this insane life that King Solomon has, he has all this fame, he has other worldly wisdom, he has exorbitant riches, it's easy to see that there was a special blessing by God put upon this man. This is not something that was ordinary. It's not something that's regular. This level of blessing could only come from the Lord. But in fact, God's favor on Solomon even caused the queen of Sheba, who is a non-believer, traveling hundreds of miles to meet King Solomon for the first time. If you look back in our text in verse 8, the queen of Sheba says, Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Not only are you, Solomon, blessed, but the people that interact with you are blessed through you. God's blessing is so strong that it's flowing through you. In verse 9, the queen makes it even clearer what the source is. She says, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. God here is due the praises. And that's what the queen gets right. She nails it. God is the one who's acting. It says in verse 9, God has delighted on you. God has set you on the throne. Because God loved Israel forever, you have a throne. God is due the praise. And God is blessing. He's showering blessings upon this man's life. His riches and his wisdom are inconceivable. However, his gifts were never meant to be gods. They were supposed to be big arrows that point to the giver of the gifts. That was the intention of these gifts. Is it enough for you to be the recipient of God's blessing? Is it enough for you to be blessed by God? Is it enough for you to experience all of the benefits of God? Loving God's gifts does not mean you are loving Him. Loving God's gifts does not mean that you are loving Him. In fact, loving gifts or any object instead of God Himself, it's not worship. It's idolatry. It's a sin. It's wicked in God's sight. Please don't be deceived that the things that God gives are not and will never be a substitute for God Himself. Maybe you can think of the question this way. Would you be satisfied with all of God's gifts? If you didn't receive him. Maybe you think. Would I desire to be in heaven. If God wasn't there. I could enjoy no more tears. No more sorrow. Eternal life. Never thirst. Never hunger. All of these benefits. All of these blessings. But if God wasn't there. Would you be satisfied? What does it look like in our lives then, practically, to treasure God's gifts over himself? Maybe it's a question that you can chew over in small group. We can think about more. But what does it look like for us to prioritize the gift of God over God? I think here's a good one. Seeing salvation as means to an escape. Is your thought, your view on salvation just about getting out of hell? Do you want to be saved so that you can be removed from a punishment? That's enjoying God's blessing, not God. Enjoying God, the proper view of this would be, I want to be saved so I can be with the Lord forever. That's my only desire. That's the one thing that I am after. So what then does it look like to treasure God above everything else? 
Turn with me to one last passage, Psalm 27. Psalm 27. We're going to go through this and I'll close. What does it look like to treasure God above everything else? Well, we're going to read a psalm written by Solomon's father. Psalm 27 and verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. King David is in the midst of war here. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. And you feel that. You feel the antagonism of the world, of your flesh, of the devil, pressing in upon you. Here's your prayer. One thing I have asked of the Lord. There's only one thing. There's one thing, God. There's only one thing that I want. There is one thing that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all of the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. That's what it looks like. If I were to read a, a transcript of your prayers, would there be a common theme? Would this be the common theme? That there's only one thing that I want. Every morning, wake up. God, there's one thing that I need today. There's one thing that I desire. There's one thing that I'm willing to give my life up for. And that's that I may sit before you. That I may gaze upon your beauty. That I may inquire in your temple. That I may dwell with you forever. I'll tell you right now that that is enough. That is enough. Let's pray. Lord.